Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have five new movies to review for you. And they're not brand new per se. They're at least two weeks old, or at least they've been out in theaters for about two weeks, somewhere from two weeks to four weeks. But because I took the last two weeks of December off from my podcast and also from my full-time job, plus last week I did my best and worst of 2022 show, which was very fun to do. It's now time for me to get into my usual reviews that I have. So I'm going to start with the newest movie that's been released in theaters, and that movie is Megan, which is styled M3GAN. So sometimes I call it M3GAN, which I actually think sounds a lot better than Megan, or at least it sounds more unique. But Megan is a film that is released by uh, Bloomhouse Productions, and it was produced by, alongside Jason Bloom, who might not make the best movies, but he knows how to make relatively low-budget films into box office hits and make lots of money from them. And for that, I am very um, ad, I'm admiring of uh, Jason Bloom. He definitely knows what he's doing from a business perspective. And M3GAN is certainly no exception to that rule. It only cost reportedly about $12 million, but at the U.S. box office alone, it so far grossed $56.4 million. So Jason Bloom definitely knows what he's doing, and I expected this film to A, creep me out, and B, considering that it's coming out in January, I expected it to actually be bad, too, considering that it's a horror film that's coming out in January, it's probably not going to be nominated for any Oscars, but I was wrong actually about the latter point. The movie did creep me out, but I was actually surprised how good it is. So the movie Megan or M3GAN, as I affectionately call it, is about a robotics engineer whose name is Gemma, and she's played by Allison Williams, who is no stranger to horror films or Bloomhouse productions, only this time she's the protagonist and not something I will inevitably spoil, even though Get Out came out six years ago. I don't want to spoil that movie. It's full of a lot of surprises, but then again, maybe you've heard of those surprises. But regardless, Allison Williams in this film plays someone we're rooting for, as opposed to in the movie Get Out, where we're not sure what her motivations are until the very end. But anyway, she plays a robotics engineer at a toy company that's called Funky, F-U-N-K-I, which is located in Seattle. And her life is turned somewhat upside down when her sister and her husband and their daughter are involved in a car accident of which their daughter Katie, who in this movie is played by the actress Violet McGraw, is the only survivor. So because Gemma is the only or the closest living relative to Katie, Gemma adopts Katie, and she also finds that the two of them bond over certain toys, which leads to Gemma creating an American doll... (laughs) 
like Fembot by the name of Megan. How they come up with the name Megan, that's not particularly well explained, but doesn't really need to be. But anyway, Megan is a, a doll that looks very lifelike, although there is lifelike, excuse me. Although there is that uncanny valley feeling when you look right into Megan's cold eyes that immediately creep you out. And it's actually one of those toys, I think, not only in this cinematic universe, but also potentially one of those toys that could come out on Walmart shelves or maybe at FAO Schwartz that girls would either have their parents buy or if they can't afford it, they definitely want it. Boys, on the other hand, would be so creeped out by this doll. And I'm just speaking from personal experience because I remember some of those dolls that some of my cousins have. I didn't have any sisters, but I did have some female cousins who had these dolls, not just Barbie dolls, but also these baby dolls that had their eyes closed. But when you pick them up, their eyes opened. That creeped me out so much when I was a kid. Um, and you could probably imagine that this Megan fembot would creep me out even more because it not only has those dead eyes and the very creepy lifelike features, but it also <laughs> communicates with whoever the owner of the toy is. So Megan in this film is not a mass produced doll like Chucky in child's play. Instead, she's a prototype. And I think that the ways in which Megan inevitably turns evil are not actually contrived. I think they're very um, believable in the scope of this film. And it also is uh, very fun to watch, actually. I sort of expected the movie Megan or M. Thregan to give me nightmares. It didn't quite go that far, but rest assured, if you took this prototype of a doll and put it in my bedroom, I probably would sleep outside in the common area and just barricade my door shut from the outside like Bugs Bunny in a lot of those cartoons. But Megan, or M. Thregan, is actually a, a very well-told film. It has a very good story, and the effects on the Megan doll are, yes, they are creepy, but it's really um, amazing how they put this Megan doll together. It's not a real robotic doll. It's kind of a combination of a body double who is Amy Donald and also a voice that's provided by voice actress Jenna Davis. And it's a combination of both body doubles and CGI, but I think it works very well. As I was watching the film, I had to remind myself that this was not a real robot, nor was it entirely CGI. But I think the effects worked incredibly well to make me believe that I was watching a doll and really having to remind myself that it was a combination of CGI's and body doubles, not to mention some other basic animatronics. But Megan worked really well as a horror film, and I don't, I don't think it was so dark and so creepy that it would give me, a 40-year-old man, nightmares, but younger children, yeah, it would probably give them nightmares, even though probably some of them would really want to see this film, but parents, 
Don't let them see it, not only because it's rated R, but they would probably have nightmares about that Megan doll, and I do not blame them at all. But as a fun kind of horror film, and for a movie that's coming out in January to a wide theatrical release, Megan is a a surprisingly good film, which is why Megan or M3 again, as I affectionately call it, gets my rating of a knockout. I think it tells an amazing story. I think that Allison Williams and Violet McGraw are the primary actors that really anchor this film with amazing acting like they do. And also the two actresses who bring Megan to life, Amy Donald and Jenna Davis do an amazing job. And the effects on Megan, especially when she starts to turn rogue and be responsible for the deaths of certain beings. And I'm not going to tell you who dies. That's pretty creepy and pretty incredible to watch. Sometimes the, the flow of the story, especially if you've seen a movie like child's play is a bit predictable, but Megan could have been a lot worse. And also the advertisements say, or they, they, they say prominently that one of the producers was the producer of Annabelle from the conjuring cinematic universe, but they don't really need to say that because Megan is a much better film. And in a lot of ways, a scarier film than Annabelle ever could wish to be. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. This is not only a spinoff to the Shrek series, but it is also a sequel to the original Puss in Boots movie that was made in 2011. And this film, uh, Puss in Boots, came out in theaters nationwide on December 21st, 2022. So I'm a little bit behind in terms of Uh, reviewing this film for you, but in a year of very exceptional animated films, Puss in Boots The Last Wish was A, better than I expected it to be, both in terms of story and in terms of cinematic quality, and B, a great way to punctuate the end of what was a stellar year for cinematic animation. So Puss in Boots The Last Wish comes... 11 years after the original Puss in Boots movie, which even though it was well animated, I don't really remember it all that well. I guess Antonio Banderas was kind of funny in it. And I also remember that Zach Galifianakis was the voice of Humpty Dumpty. But other than that, even though I've seen the original Puss in Boots film twice, it was actually pretty forgettable. And that's really unfortunate. And it probably had something to do with the fact that the Puss in Boots sequel was languishing in development hell for some time. It was originally going to be called Puss in Boots 2, Nine Lives and 40 Thieves. And eventually the story, as well as the 40 Thieves, were gutted from the film. And ultimately this movie came out. And at first, when I saw it animated, I did think to myself, I'm not going to say it's bad because I have to see a movie before I determine whether it's good or bad. In my book, movies are good until proven bad. 
But I wasn't looking entirely forward to seeing this film, but the movie did prove me wrong in a lot of ways. So anyway, as I said, it takes place after the events of the original uh, Puss in Boots movie, but I'm not entirely sure if it takes place before the events of the Shrek films. I think it does, but I'm not entirely sure. But in this film, Puss in Boots is reprised by Antonio Banderas, and he discovers that his passion for adventure has taken its toll. He has burned through eight of his nine lives, and this is what a doctor tells him. So Puss sets out on an epic journey to find the mythical last wish, and he wants to use that last wish to restore his nine lives. So in this movie, Puss in Boots, as well as The Last Wish, he does not live in the land of far, far away, but he lives somewhere uh, close to that, particularly in an offshoot of Mexico that's called uh, Del Mar. And this is apparently a place where a lot of not uh, fairy tale characters reside, but uh, where nursery rhyme characters reside. Some uh, fairy tale characters here and there. But the primary antagonists in this movie are actually Goldilocks and the Three Bears, who, contrary to the classic tale, actually work together and form uh, a gang who is also like Puss in Boots after this last wish. Goldilocks is voiced by Florence Pugh. Um, Papa Bear is voiced by legendary actor Ray Winstone. Mama Bear is voiced by Olivia Coleman, and Baby Bear is voiced by another British actor whom I'm not entirely familiar, and his name is Samson Cayo. But the four of them work together really well. I especially loved Ray Winstone as the voice of Papa Bear. He was really badass. And another character from Nursery Rhymes, who is also after this last wish, is probably more the villain than the antagonist. And his name is Jack Horner. And he is voiced by John Mulaney. And Jack Horner is not only an underworld syndicate boss, but he also runs a pie shop. And he's big Jack Horner, who's grown up from being the has-been child actor little Jack Horner. And for those of you who don't know your nursery rhymes, the nursery rhyme for Jack Horner was little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating his Christmas pie. He stuck it in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? If you don't know that nursery rhyme, you might be very confused by the Jack Horner character, but I think it's one of those things that's passed down from generation to generation. At least, you know, as a kid growing up in the 80s, I had my nursery rhyme book, and I knew a lot of the nursery rhymes in there by heart. But there are also some protagonist supporting characters, including... Um, uh, um, allies um, of Puss in Boots, including Kitty Softpaws, who is reprised in this film from the original Puss in Boots movie, and she's voiced by Salma Hayek, just like she was in the original Puss in Boots movie. But you also have uh, a small dog that gets away with being a cat who befriends Puss in Boots, albeit reluctantly, and his name is Perito, which is Spanish for little dog, and he's voiced by Harvey Gayen. And even though Harvey Gayen is probably the least known actor in, or at least uh, maybe the least known voice actor in this animated movie, he is probably the standout character and he does have the biggest laughs, especially when he's 
over eager to please uh, Puss in Boots. And Puss in Boots, Kitty Softpaws, and Perito make a really great team. And the journey for them to get to this uh, star that grants them the last wish is really intriguing. Not to mention that the the three of them work very, very well off the other antagonists in the movie. And eventually it's revealed that Jack Horner is the primary villain, albeit Goldilocks and the Three Bears are less villains, definitely antagonists, and more like bounty hunters. But I really got behind the film. I think it told a, an amazing story. It definitely blew the boots off of the original Puss in Boots in terms of not only having really excellent animation, but also telling a great and unique story with very familiar characters. But I laughed all the way through the film, and I was very impressed by it overall, which is why I give Puss in Boots The Last Wish my rating of a knockout. I don't know if this is going to be a revival of the Shrek series. My guess is it probably will be, especially when a near end credit series hints that there is going to be a, a sequel to Puss in Boots and B it's going to tie in a little bit more to the original Shrek franchise. But if this movie is any indication, I'm actually looking forward to seeing how it ties in and hopefully it's not a full blown reboot. Hopefully it ties into the original series and gives it probably the full circle rehabilitation that the franchise deserves. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. This is the long-awaited big screen biopic, which is about the joyous, emotional, heartbreaking celebration of the life and music of Whitney Houston, one of the greatest female R&B pop vocalists of all time, tracking her journey from obscurity to musical stardom. The director of this film is Cassie Lemons, and Cassie Lemons has had a prolific uh, directing career. Among the films that she has directed have included, probably most recently, the uh, one of the episodes of the series Women of the Movement. But in terms of uh, movies, she's directed Harriet, which came out three years ago and starred uh, Cynthia Erivo as Harriet Tubman. She also directed the big screen adaptation of Black Nativity, which I didn't see. She directed Talk to Me, starring Don Cheadle and Chiwetel Ejiofor, which was an, another excellent biopic. And she also directed Eve's Bayou, which came out in 1997 and was Roger Ebert's uh, favorite film of that year. Yeah, even above Titanic, Goodwill Hunting, Donnie Brasco, and other great films to come out that year. So Cassie Lemons is a prolific and talented director, but... Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, had some problems. Some problems, not a, a lot. First of all, the title of the film, I thought, was ill-advised. And that's not the fault of any 
any person who made the film. It, it's actually more the, the, the studio and maybe the, the, the publicity team that comes out with the name. But I had two problems with it. First of all, I wanted to dance with somebody is one of Whitney Houston's most well-known songs, but I don't think it's the song that really defined her or her career. And Whitney Houston, as a performer, made some really good dance songs. I Want to Dance with Somebody is one of them. If you play that at a party, people will get up and dance, even people who don't normally dance. And there are some other dance songs she did as well that were really good, like her remake of I'm Every Woman or How Will I Know, which is timeless. But Whitney Houston herself was A, not a particularly great dancer, and B, her bread and butter, the the songs that really made her considered one of the best female R&B pop vocalists of all times were ballads, like her remakes of The Greatest Love of All or most especially I Will Always Love You, the latter of which is still one of the top 10 best-selling singles by any artist in any genre of all time. I think it's number seven on the list, and that is incredibly impressive. And it also uh, gets Dolly Parton some extra royalty checks as well. It's probably made Dolly Parton even more wealthy. But regardless, I think that the movie could have just been called Whitney, and everyone would have known exactly what the movie or who the movie was about. Very similar to the, the movie um, Ray. Of course, Ray Charles isn't the only famous Ray, but it's a very succinct and to-the-point title. But again, I'm not saying that this movie is faltered because of its long and unnecessary title. Let me just get into the, the details about this film. It, it follows Whitney Houston from when she's a late teenager to right before she died. And the movie runs two hours, 24 minutes. And throughout the movie, Whitney Houston is played primarily by British actress Naomi Ackie. And I actually think that even though Naomi Ackie does not look a lot like Whitney Houston, as a matter of fact, I think she actually looked more like Brandy Norwood. But despite that, I think that Naomi Ackie actually acts really well in this film as Whitney Houston. And she must have really studied Miss Houston's performances because she gets every mannerism of Whitney Houston down pat, especially when she's on stage performing in front of people. Some of the hand movements and also the way she moves her head, just little things like that, Naomi Aki gets really um, solid. And also, some of the supporting performers in this movie include um, Stanley Tucci, who plays Clive Davis. And some of the best scenes in this film involve Clive Davis and Whitney Houston conversing about her life and her career. And those are undoubtedly some of the best scenes in the film. I also really liked uh, Tamara Tooney, who's not a well-known actress by name, but once you see her, you know you've seen her in other movies and TV shows. And she plays Whitney Houston's mother and a great singer in her own right, Sissy Houston. And there are some things in this film that are a little that are portrayed on screen that might seem a little far-fetched. Like, for example, there's a scene where Sissy Houston is performing in a club 
and Clive Davis, Stanley Tucci's character, is there to see her, and she pretends that she has strep throat just so Whitney Houston can go out on stage and perform for Clive Davis. And it might seem a bit far-fetched, and it does seem like one of those biopic cliches, but this is something that reportedly actually happened the the night that Clive Davis came to see Sissy Houston. So that was uh, very impressive. So I will say that the first part of this film, particularly where it shows the rise of Whitney Houston from just being known as Sissy Houston's daughter and Dionne Warwick's cousin, as well as Aretha Franklin's god doc, uh, goddaughter, all of which are true, to becoming a household name in her own right. I thought that was good, but eventually I felt like the second half of the film suffered from biopic fatigue. And I feel like there, Whitney Houston's life in the 48 years that she lived was so prolific and so multifaceted that a two hour, a two and a half hour movie doesn't really do her life justice. But then again, the Elvis movie that came out earlier in 2022 also balanced the early life and the later life of Elvis Presley surprisingly well. And that movie certainly had its problems, but one of its biggest assets was that the same person who played Elvis when he was young and he was old really sold it and also... The, the the movie had more of a narrative balance despite all the Baz Luhrmann eccentricities. But I felt like towards the end here, the movie almost pulled back in detailing Whitney Houston's drug addiction and also her very untimely and undeserved death. It also doesn't deal with the, the irony, the tragic irony that Whitney Houston was a woman of very deep faith she was very close to her immediate family, and it was just, it's bizarre that she died the way she did. And when other artists like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, uh, Amy Winehouse, when they died, it was a bit less predictable because they were younger, they didn't quite have the same stability in terms of their family and friends, and also you expected them to be based on their repertoire as well as their reputations to die the way they did. And Whitney Houston had almost the opposite issue there. And I feel like this would have been a stronger movie, maybe if it focused either on Whitney Houston's rise as an artist or about her untimely downfall. Now, the latter subject would have been devastatingly sad. There's no doubt about that. And it probably would have been controversial because people who would have known Whitney Houston personally, not just by reputation, may have spoken out about the film, but it would have been more intriguing and also would have had that necessary narrative balance. So Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, could have been a worse biopic, bar none, but I think it could have been better as well. But I still give Whitney Houston I Want to Dance with Somebody a marginal checkout because the performances in this film, particularly by Naomi Ackie, Stanley Tucci, and Tamara, Tamara Tooney, are very good. And there was also another additional performance um, of Nefessa Williams, who plays Whitney Houston's 
confidant Robin Crawford and explores their relationship as well, which I think in and of itself would have also made an intriguing film. But the problem with this film is, first of all, the title is something you would expect on a Lifetime movie. And this being a film that was released in theaters, it has to be above a Lifetime movie in every way. And secondly, it crammed way too much into a prolific and multifaceted life. And if it had just explored one facet of her life, it would have been a better film. And it also would have felt a lot less crammed. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Babylon. This is a star-studded film that is certainly an epic film running three hours, nine minutes. And it's also the fourth film from director and writer Damien Chazelle. And Damien Chazelle, for those who might have forgotten, also directed such really excellent films, even years later, ones that still stand the test of time as Whiplash and La La Land. And Babylon, as I said, is his fourth film. And he's also coming to this film as an Academy Award winning director. But this film is simply put a mess. And I don't know if it's entirely Damien Chazelle's fault as he's given the only writing credit for both story and screenplay. But my guess is that this film got a lot of studio interference within it because it seems like the most publicized characters or most exposed characters in this film are not particularly the most interesting or the ones that we've seen before. But simply put, Babylon is a film that takes place in Hollywood, not Babylon as in the capital of Mesopotamia. But it's a tale of outsized ambition and outrageous excess, and it traces the rise and fall of multiple characters during an era of unbridled decadence and depravity in early Hollywood. And by early Hollywood, it means, I mean, the time in Hollywood in the late 1920s where Hollywood was transitioning its films from silent to sound films. And in this film, we have some unique characters who uh, adapt to the sound film era in their own sort of unique ways. Either they adapt to it or, in Bob Dylan's terms, they sink like a stone. And one of the characters in this film who sinks like a stone is Jack Conrad, who's played in this movie by Brad Pitt. And Jack Conrad is one of those silent film stars, very much like Douglas Fairbanks in the sense that he is a leading man, but when it comes to 
him being in sound pictures, he does struggle mightily in doing that. And I think that the, the character Jack Conrad's journey in this film is not really anything new, especially if you've seen movies like Singing in the Rain or The Artist, the latter of which was a film that came out in 2010. It was almost completely silent. And it won Best Picture that year. And I think it deserved to win. But that actually had a more refreshing take on the Singing in the Rain uh, early Hollywood story trope than Babylon does. And one of the actresses who adapts a bit better to the, uh, the, the sound film era is an actress by the name of Nellie Leroy, who's played in this film by Margot Robbie. And Margot Robbie is good in some scenes and other scenes. She is definitely over the top. And I think in a way that is somewhat unnecessary to the film. For example, she swears. Well, a lot of characters swear excessively in this film. And uh, in a way that kind of had me thinking, did people actually swear this much in Hollywood in the late 1920s? Did they swear like the characters in Martin Scorsese films. I, I don't know. I mean, I would have to speak to somebody who was alive back then and there aren't very many people who were, but it seems like it, they would they would have a bit more tact back then. But then again, maybe that's me being used to seeing films from that era where that kind of language was 100% prohibited, but I, I don't exactly know for sure. But there's also some other characters, including Manny Torres, who is first a Hollywood handyman who works his way up to being a producer, and he's played by Diego Calva. And there is sort of a love story that takes place between Manny Torres and Margot Robbie's character Nellie Leroy, but it kind of sputters and stalls here and there, and it doesn't live up to the, the movie and its ambition. There's also another ambitious jazz trumpeter by the name of Sidney Palmer, who's played by Jovan Adepo, who I actually thought had one of the best uh, storylines in this film. And when he was, when his character was shown to go from being a, a working jazz artist to eventually making his way into the movies and becoming actually a black marquee star similar to Cab Calloway or Louis Armstrong, I thought th that was where the film was really taking off. But then ultimately, because this is a film about six people, it kind of started to get interesting. And then the movie kind of went next. So I, I think if the whole movie was about him, it would have been really, really interesting. But there was also another character who's based on, a real person who I thought should have gotten some more screen time, especially considering that the the movie focuses on her quite a bit. And the, the character is an Asian actress who is, you know, a, a burlesque um, performer on stage, but then eventually makes her way into movies. And her name is Lady Fei Zhu, who's played by Lee Jun Lee. And very much like the, uh, the character that I just mentioned 
uh, played by Johanna Depo, those two characters I thought were among the most interesting in the film. But unfortunately, I think because studio executives knew they had Brad Pitt in this movie, they focused the most on him. And Brad Pitt in this movie was not particularly good. I think he was okay, but his character was somewhat bland, not only because he's an amalgamation of characters we've seen before, but Brad Pitt seemed to kind of phone this character in. And the character's downfall, which I won't give away, only to tell you that it's a downfall, was not surprising and also not particularly heartbreaking either. And also, I thought Margot Robbie was, as I said, too over the top, and there were scenes that were outrageous in terms of seeing them actually take place on screen, including Margot Robbie actually doing a stunt with a snake, which I I think was probably good for a short film, but didn't really work in the grand scheme of the story. But there were some things that of Babylon that did uh, work, like the cinematography was pretty amazing and the set design, but I thought that the movie felt a little bit more like a hardcore porn film than it did a legitimately excellent epic. And what I mean by that is people watch hardcore porn for basically one reason. It's not to get off or get aroused. It's to kind of be shocked And I think that the novelty of hardcore porn wears off for just about everybody for that reason. And there are things in this movie that definitely are shocking, like hardcore porn. In fact, some of them even border on hardcore pornography because of the fact that they are seemingly put on film to be outrageous, but don't really contribute to the story at all. Which is why Babylon, in essence, is a big mess. And it's a movie that, in my book, gets my rating of a flunk out. It is not a poorly acted film, but it's one that definitely lost its focus. I don't know if Damien Chazelle is the one entirely to blame here. He might be, but my guess is the primary culprit here is studio interference. And also, the movie, as well as maybe the post-production and the Lionsgate Film Studio, as well as um, Paramount Pictures, probably lost its nerve when it came to actually developing a lot of these characters more for the big story and actually having their stories tie in together towards the end. Because if you're telling a story about five or six different people, especially if it's an epic film, their stories almost have to be tied in together. Otherwise, why even tell them? Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Glass Onion, 
with the full name Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. What does this movie have to do with Knives Out? Well, it is from the same writer and director of Knives Out, specifically Ryan Johnson, and it also has one character from the Knives Out movie from 2019 who has come back to reprise his role. And that character is a private investigator by the name of Benoit Blanc, who, despite his French-sounding name, is from the South, although he's played by British actor Daniel Craig. And Daniel Craig's southern accent is a bit off, in my opinion, but he does still play a very appealing and also very intelligent character, definitely up there in terms of his interesting eccentricities, as well as intelligence, along with Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot. But unlike those two famous detectives, Benoit Blanc is entirely the creation of the writer and director of this movie, Ryan Johnson. He was not based on any character in a book from of that I know. But Benoit Blanc is back in this movie as his private investigator self as he travels to Greece for his latest case. And he is invited to Greece actually by an eccentric billionaire who hails from New York but has his own private island in uh, Greece, which is also home to a large glass sculpture known as the Glass Onion. And this character, Miles Braun, is played by Edward Norton, who is very much, as you might expect, a an eccentric billionaire along the likes of Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. He's a relatively young guy, and he is filthy rich, but he also is very laid back and approachable. But at the same time, there is something off about him, especially when... He has an ex-business partner whose name is Helen Brand, who's played by Janelle Monet, who is somehow invited to this island, despite being his ex-business partner, who has probably worked out of the multi-billion dollar technology company. And why she's invited, I don't exactly know. But there's actually another brilliant line in this film that's spoken by Dave Bautista, who plays... Duke Cody, who is a video game streamer and men's rights activist, kind of similar to Alex Jones in the latter sense. But he actually says to Benoit Blanc, the the question is not why was she invited? The question is, why did she come? And that's probably one of the uh, most interesting parts uh, of this film. But there's also a mystery that happens because not only is Benoit Blanc and Helen Brand and Ducote invited to this island, but there's also a governor of Connecticut who's running for Senate whose name is Claire DeBella, who is presumably a Democrat, and she's played by Catherine Hahn. There's also Lionel Toussaint, who is the head scientist for Miles Braun's company. He's played by Leslie Odom Jr., you also have Bertie J, who is a politically incorrect former supermodel turned fashion designer who's played by Kate Hudson in what I think is her best performance since Almost Famous. You also have Peg, who is Bertie's assistant, played by Jessica Henwick, and Duke's girlfriend, Whiskey. And yeah, that is actually her name or her um, nom de plume, who's played by Madeline Klein. 
And there are some other characters here and there, as well as some very interesting uh, cameos here and there. Some big cameos don't really amount to very much. And there are other cameos in this film that are very surprising. Two cameos, by the way, are from people who are no longer with us. In other words, they died not too long ago and their deaths were very well publicized. So even though they died before the film was released, they actually do make appearances um, in this film. And there are also some other um, cameos that are hinted at, but ultimately never actually appear. And there are other, there are other cameos that are drop dead funny. And I won't give away what those cameos are because not only are the cameos very surprising, but the people who are making the cameos really do make the most out of the literally few seconds there on screen. But that's not the best part of the film. What actually is the best part of the film is the mystery itself. And at first, Miles Braun, Edward Norton's character, has basically sort of an escape room mystery. It's one that's very staged and... Benoit Blanc, being the genius private investigator that he is, actually figures it out before it starts. But then there is an actual murder that takes place on this island with the glass onion. But the murderer, him or herself, who I won't give away, is not the best part of this film. What the best part of this film is one particular actor who has a particular twist that's revealed in the middle of the film. And I have a rule here on words on film, and I really sometimes have to bite my tongue, not literally, but figuratively to prevent me from breaking this rule. And that rule is no spoilers. And sometimes I give away certain things that happen in the beginning of the film because it's important to the plot. But especially when it comes to mysteries like glass onion, I never give away the ending. What I will say though is This movie is amazingly acted. Yeah, I did complain a little bit about Daniel Craig's southern accent. I'm not crazy about it, but that is a very, very dishonorable mention or very, very minute dishonorable mention, I should say. Everything else about this film from the acting to the characterization to the big mystery that unfolds is full of amazing twists and turns. The set design is incredible. And I am really looking forward to seeing Benoit Blanc in another film as well. And also, I did mention the connection between Glass Onion and Knives Out, uh, with the latter of which came out in 2019. Knives Out was an excellent whodunit, but it was a very basic whodunit. And I think for the twists and turns and the way they're crafted in this film, Glass Onion is actually a better film than Knives Out. But then again, there wouldn't be Glass Onion without Knives Out either. But I do think that Glass Onion could be considered maybe an equal to Knives Out, not a sequel, an equal in the sense that there's one character that's reprised in this movie, but it also kind of take, it's not the same film as Knives Out. It takes what could be sort of a cheesy and predictable murder mystery and turns it on its head in so many clever and yeah, unpredictable ways. So Glass Onion, I did mention in my show last week of the best and worst of 2022 as 
the best film of 2022, and I do stand by that. Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, gets my rating of a 100% certified, very enthusiastic knockout. It is a lot of fun. There are some weaknesses to the film, like Daniel Craig's southern accent, as well as some cameos that don't really amount to much, but the cameos that do amount to a lot are so good that the Academy should consider having a best cameo category. I, I, maybe it's a little bit pandering, but I think it might be fun, but I'm just saying that there is a lot to love about glass out a glass onion, a knives out mystery, including the fact that it is available on Netflix right now and has been since December 23rd. I would have loved to have seen this film on the big screen, but with the week that I was out in theaters, I didn't have time to see it, but it is a very high quality film. It's very funny. It's very thrilling. It's everything you would want in a whodunit and more. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into a truncated version of my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are slated or subject to be coming out in theaters, because theaters is all I have time to cover on this episode, for the weekend of January 20th, 2023. And the first movie that is subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called Alice Darling. And this is what looks to be a semi-indie film. It premiered at last year's Toronto International Film Festival, or TIFF. And it's about a young woman who is trapped in an abusive relationship who becomes the unwitting participant in an intervention staged by her two closest friends. And the young woman in this film is Anna Kendrick, whom I love. I've seen her in some bad films, but usually she's not the worst part of the film in which I see. But yeah, anything with Anna Kendrick in it is definitely worth seeing. I'm not guaranteeing whether it'd be good or bad, but Anna Kendrick is usually the saving grace of bad movies. And I'm not guaranteeing that this film is going to be great either, but her two best friends, by the way, are played, are, are Tess and Sophie, who are played by Kanitio Horn and Wunmi Mosaku, respectively. I'm not familiar with those um, actors, but I'd be very interested to see this film. It certainly looks like a film that would take itself seriously. I'm not guaranteeing that I'm going to see it next week because I have a lot of, you know, new year catching up to do in terms of movies. But if it's coming out in the theater near me and I have time to see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on January 20th is a movie that's called The Sun. This movie has a lot of big actors in it. It has Hugh Jackman, Anthony Hopkins, Vanessa Kirby, and others. It's about a man by the name of Peter who has his busy life with his new partner, Beth, and their baby thrown into disarray when his ex-wife, Kate, turns up with their teenage son, Nicholas. 
Ooh, that sounds juicy, if anything. But, um, yeah, uh, Peter is played by Hugh Jackman, as I, uh, as I implied. Peter's father is played by Anthony Hopkins. So, again, Anthony Hopkins, like Anna Kendrick, is one of those actors who may not always be in the greatest films, but even if he's in a bad film, he's usually not the weakest part of it. So the sun looks very juicy. It sounds very juicy and very intriguing. If it's coming out in the theater near me, I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on January 20th is a movie that's called missing and missing is in all caps. So, you know, it's serious. Um, And actually, I don't have a description for this one because my sources say that the mystery is under wraps. What I can tell you, though, is that the stars of the movie include Nia Long, who plays somebody by the name of Grace, and also Storm Reed, who plays the part of June. Presumably, Grace and June are mother and daughter, respectively, but I don't entirely know. But Missing has a plot that's under wraps. I won't say anything more about it, but I'm also intrigued to see this film. So January is usually that month where there are films that come out that look high profile, but they're actually usually pretty bad films. And I think that Hollywood just wants to get those films out and out of the way for contractual obligations, even though they know they're going to lose money on them. But these three films sound really good. But they're not the only films that are coming out on January 20th. There's another one that's called Oliver Out Loud. And this is a film about a guy by the name of Oliver who is a special kind of guy just looking to be normal and in love. Stuck in a pattern of repetition, born with this disability of a broken brain, he seeks to be normal. With his tool of escapism, he is able to curb his disability. And this actually is telling me nothing about it. I don't see a poster. I don't see any actors who are in this um, film. I know it's a drama, not a documentary, but all I'm being told are the director and writers of this film. The director, by the way, is Maria Geese, and the co-writer of this film is Alex Torres. I can't tell you anything more about it. All I know is that I'm intrigued, but in sort of that mysterious kind of way. If it's a film that I see, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.